start, as Chip mentioned, next week during this hour. Let me go ahead and pray for me, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of First Samuel, that we can spend some time in there today. I pray that you would speak through me, and that as we leave here, we would just have a better appreciation for who you are, Lord, a better understanding of the cross, Lord, that we would leave here um, with just a, a new renewed focus on you. In your name, amen. So D.L. Moody, how many of you heard of D.L. Moody? Uh, D.L. Moody was probably back in the late 1800s, one of the most famous evangelists in the world. And he would do these conferences really all over the world. And people would come at different times. And he did one in Massachusetts. And he tells this story, or someone tells the story. They did it in Massachusetts. And there was a large group of Europeans who came to the conference. And I guess as was customary in Europe at that time, they had... um, people who would come in and clean shoes every night, like maybe it was in hotels and, you know, just there was a working class of folks in the 1800s that would come in and clean shoes. So they were, all these Europeans were at the conference and they said that D.L. Moody was kind of walking the halls, praying in the dormitory for the conference, praying for those pastors and he passed by and saw these shoes out in front of the different rooms and he was like, wait a minute, what are those for? And then he, then it dawned on him that those shoes were there because those pastors just assumed they weren't doing it arrogantly, but that was just the tradition. They just assumed that somebody would would clean the shoes. And so he didn't know what to do. And he says he went and talked to some of his interns and some of the help that was with him, but none of the students offered to, you know, help him out and pick up the shoes and polish them. They were just trying to figure out what they could do without offending these these pastors. And so without a word, he went and just picked up all the shoes himself, took him back to his room, and started polishing in the middle of the night all these shoes. So the next morning when the pastors got up, their shoes would be clean out in front of their, their doors. And the only reason the story is even told is because a friend of his knocked on the door came in and said, what are you doing? Like, you know, I saw the light on. I wanted to see what he was doing. And, and then, you know, he's the one that then told the story that D.L. Moody and the time was one of the most famous, probably evangelical or evangelists in the world. And he's in there polishing shoes. And the only reason I tell that story is because for a lot of us, and we'll see this this week, but for a lot of us, when fame hits, there's a, a different expectation for a lot of people. The, the humility tends to, not for everybody, but tends to go out the window. And, you know, other characteristics set in. You know, humility just, uh, I don't know, I got people to do that for me now. I got things that can be done now. You know, today as we go into First Samuel, we're in First Samuel chapter 18. If you can go ahead and turn there, turn on your phone, First Samuel chapter 18. And we're going to see a few different characteristics emerge from this passage. One is we're going to see a friendship between David and Jonathan. This is kind of the beginning of a friendship between Jonathan and David. And this isn't a surface level friendship. Okay, this is a deep abiding friendship. And we'll also see humility on both of these individuals. We'll see humility because one of them is the heir apparent to the throne. Saul is king. Jonathan is Saul's oldest son. So he is theoretically, in the eyes of the world, the heir to the throne. Okay, then we'll also see David, who as we know from previous chapters, has already been anointed by Samuel as the next king. And we're going to see humility on both of these individuals throughout this story. And unfortunately, we're also going to see King Saul, who's the first king of Israel. And we're going to see jealousy. We're going to see anger. 
We're going to see frustration, and we're going to see it continue to drive him deeper and deeper into hopelessness and despair. So last week, just a little background, last week, if you recall, we walked through everyone's favorite childhood story. The story that single-handedly kept flannel graph companies in the business for much of the 80s. This is like a blast from my childhood. I don't know if anybody even knows what these are. Some of you who are like under 20 are like, what in the world? They used to have these green felt boards that you would have these Bible characters and you'd kind of slap them up there and they would stick. See, Ray knows what I'm talking about. They'd stick to the board. So this was one of, I mean, this story, if you had a flannel graph set and you didn't have David and Goliath, you just hang it up. All right, because everybody had David and Goliath. I think I have the next slide's my favorite part of the story when I was a kid, <laughs> where David, and who thought this was a children's story is beyond me, but, um, but this, was, this was the story we went through last week, and when we left at the end of chapter 17, you have David in front of King Saul having a conversation, and he's holding Goliath's head in his hand. And that's where the passage left off. That's where we're going to pick up today. Everybody got that? Maybe you don't have the image in your mind, but you know where we are. All right, 1 Samuel 17. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, talking about Goliath, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. All right, I still mind blown. That's a classic children's bedtime story. But Saul said to him, whose son, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. So put yourself in the scene. Put yourself in the tent. Put yourself in the palace. I don't know where they're having this conversation. David has come back from war. He's come into Saul's presence, and Saul's like, okay, we've been trying to kill this giant for a month. For a month, he's been taunting us. For a month, he's been you know, railing us every day, berating us with all these, these lines, telling us we're weak, telling us we're puny, telling us there's nothing we can do. And you come out and kill him with a stone. Like, what gives? Like, I don't, I don't really, I, mean, I, can, I can picture Saul's mind as they're trying to figure this out. And, you know, he's like, I don't understand. And David's like, well, it's the power of God. It wasn't me. It was the power of God. And Saul's like, yeah, 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 yeah I get that part. But tell me what you did, right? Show me your sling. Pull your sling out. Let me see your sling. Is there something magical about this sling? Let me, let me try it out a few times. Give me a couple stones. Let me see if I can do the same thing you just did. And David's like, it's not me. Like the Lord is the one behind the power. The Lord's the one that gives the strength. The Lord's the one that guides the stone. The Lord's the one that did all this. And Saul's like, whatever. Just tell me who your family is. Who's your, who's your father? Because if you remember in chapter 17, one of the rewards for whoever could kill this giant was that you could marry Saul's daughter and that your family would never pay taxes again. We read that last week in chapter 17. So finally, at some point, he's just like, who, you know, whose son is this? Tell me, who's, tell me whose son this kid is. And he goes, and then we go to chapter 18. It says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, so as soon as this conversation had finished, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So Saul and David finished their conversation. And Jonathan, who's Saul's oldest son, is obviously in the room. He's hearing this conversation go down. And it says... I mean, probably hearing him talk about the power, talk about the fact that God's the one that did this. All I did is show up with the stone and, you know, God's the one who killed him. And it says, when something in Jonathan's heart moved, 
And when he was finished talking, it says he loved him as his own soul, in verse 3. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a little strange to me. Like through my eye gate, 21st century reading this thing, it sounds a little, a little strange. I mean, why did he just strip and give David his clothes? And why does it say he loved him as his own soul? And as you're reading this, a few chapters later, you'll hear David say to Jonathan, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. Now, before you t- get too weirded out, you, all, you have to understand, one of the most important things about reading scripture is understanding how the original audience would have interpreted this. The original readers were not the original audience. The people who were reading this for the first time when it was first written, would it have sounded strange to them to hear this type of language? And the answer is no. When they read this, they would have read deep and abiding friendship. Okay, and unfortunately... I think we live in such a hyper-sexualized culture that even friendship is often looked at oddly. It's looked at suspect. You know, it's just, I, I don't know why, but it's just, it's the world we live in. I remember the first time I was in India, we were teaching at a pastor's conference, and we were up near Nepal in the lower Himalayas. It was a beautiful area of the country. Um, India can be pretty overwhelming. I don't know if you've ever been to India, but it can be, you know, 40 million people in tight cities, lots of horns, lots of smog, and it's just, it can be pretty overwhelming, but we were in a totally different area. It was just me, three other teachers, and 100 pastors. And we were just teaching for a week these pastors that they would bring in from all over the country um, for this conference, I guess I'll call it. And I remember one of the sessions I wrapped up, and I'm leaving to go to dinner. It was in the evening, and I'm talking with this pastor, and we're walking to dinner. And there was two guys, two pastors in front of me, and they were walking, and all of a sudden one reached down, and as they're walking, and grabs the other's hand. And they just, you know, walked to dinner. And I'm, you know, like... You know, all these sirens are going off in my head. And I'm just, I'm trying to understand. I'm like, you know, what's happening? I'm looking around. Is anybody else seeing what I'm seeing? Like, is this, is this normal? You know, there's no one else around. I just, so I just go to dinner. And I'm just thinking about it. I mean, it wasn't like, uh, come here, Luke. It was, it was like this. Come here. <laughs> I, I can't be the only awkward one up here. I mean, you know, it's one thing if you're going to dinner and you're, we're going to walk this way. And you're just, you know, I mean, most of us have done, you know, you're talking with somebody, you're walking with somebody. But I mean, these guys literally come over here. They literally reach down. And they're just walking to dinner like this. And for me, you're done, thanks. (laughs) You know, for me, it was very odd. And over the next few days, I saw the same thing happen at least a half dozen times with different pastors. And I'm, you know, as I'm trying to like think of what this is, I'm realizing over the course of the week that this is very common in India. This is a very, just like I put my arm around Luke and I'm talking to Luke, to them, that would be no different than just grabbing somebody's hand. And in reality, it's not. But we look at it, you know, at least I did. Maybe you guys are, you know, different than I am. But I'm looking at this and I'm just like, wow, that seems weird. And, you know, I'm not suggesting we should all go around holding hands. You know, thank goodness Ryan Larson's on vacation. Um, But unfortunately, in our country, I think you reach this deep emotion. And there's really no category for deep emotion in friendships. 
It's like, okay, I'm at this point with this person. It's, we have this deep emotional connection. There has to be some kind of romantic aspect to it now. And that's just the culture we live in. You get to a point where you care about somebody so much, it just must go to the... And that, that doesn't make any sense. And it didn't make any sense for the Israelites who would, would have been reading this. And as men, the sad part is as men, let me talk to the men for a second. Most of us don't even have a category for deep friendship. We don't. If you went and asked the average man, how many f- deep, how many real friends do you have? You know, especially if you're over the age of 25. Most of them will say, I've got, you know, very few friends. And if you have friends, a lot of times you're talking about certain things. And it's not really a deep friendship. In reality, it's more of an acquaintance. And we don't have friends that we bear our souls with. We don't have the, the David and the Jonathan. I'm speaking to myself here. Okay, I'm not, literally, I'm speaking to myself. We don't have that David and Jonathan type where your soul is knit together, where you understand what's going on in this person's life, where you understand what are they struggling with, what are they not struggling with. Well, how can you be praying for each other? How can you be helping each other? And that is a very healthy part of the church. It's very healthy for people to have deep, abiding relationships where you care for... Remember the one another's in Scripture? The New Testament, you can hardly read a chapter without seeing the word one another. Love one another. Care for one another. Bear each other's burdens. And it's, you know, it's very biblical to do that. And that's what you're seeing in David and Jonathan. Don't think it's anything else. That's what you're seeing in David and Jonathan. You're seeing deep, genuine friendship. We'll talk more about that at the end, and we'll talk more about it in the coming weeks. But when Jonathan takes off his robe and gives it to David, it's a big deal. When he takes off that robe and he says, here, David, I want you to have this. Remember the the story of Joseph in Genesis? Remember that story we had the coat of many colors? Cameron, did you get me a flannel graph? (laughs) See, look at that. He got me a flannel graph for it. Um, It's the coat of many colors. Now, when we were reading this story or when you heard it as kids, or even if you're reading it just through Genesis, a lot of times you think that the reason that they were so jealous of Joseph is because his coat was pretty. Man, that's a pretty coat. I wish I had a pretty coat. And while there may have been some, you know, his coat may have been pretty and they may have been jealous of his coat, the coat meant something. His father gave it to him for a reason. It showed honor. It showed position. It showed importance. In a lot of cases, it made you an overseer. It came, it came with a position. Robes meant something. So when Jonathan gives his robe to David, essentially what he's saying is, I know that I am technically the heir apparent as Saul's oldest son. I am technically heir apparent to the throne. But I can see and listen after having the conversation you just had with my dad. What you just did to Goliath, the fact that you killed, I can see the hand of God on you. And you are the rightful person to be wearing this robe, this sword, this shield, my armor, it's yours. I'm going to take it all off and I'm going to give it to you because I know that God's hand is on your life. Is that not humility? I mean, that, that is humility. I mean, Jonathan is royalty and David is a peasant. He's a shepherd. He's a farmer. Okay, Jonathan was going to have the throne. And David, you know, at least in Jonathan's eyes, had no legitimate right to the throne. Now, we know he was anointed. But if I'm Jonathan, this guy has no legitimate right to the throne in my eyes. If I'm, if I'm Jonathan looking over here at David. But I, I can recognize God's hand on his life. And the other thing is there's a pretty big age gap 
between these two. You know, I always think of Jonathan and David when I would read stories. I always think they were like teenagers, kind of the goof-offs in the castle. They were all playing together, and the reason they were so close is because they were both teenagers, they were both friends. Most scholars believe there was quite a big age difference between Jonathan and David. Some go as low as 10 years between them. Warren Wearsby in his commentary said there was probably 25 years between the two. When you look at the timeline between the two. So we're not, we're not talking like two little teenagers that are just best friends. They're buddies. We're talking a seasoned veteran of war. You read about him a few chapters ago who's leading armies. And he recognizes this young kid, David. And he says, God's clearly working. You're going to be the next king. That's, that's humility. And I think it's a great example for us when you, when you look at the humility of Christ, you look at him coming to earth, I mean, you, you sense all throughout Christ's life, you see humility. And anytime you see humility in the lives of these biblical characters, it's always brought to the forefront. Like, wow, humility, it's such a, such a great thing. All right, verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, talking about Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. So, you know, you see these imagery and a lot of times like Roman movies where the emperor's coming home or the soldiers are coming home and they're walking down the streets of Rome and there's people lined up on both sides cheering and they're coming in on their chariots and they have the prisoners behind them. I mean, that's kind of the imagery that this will be happening. King Saul's at the front. The warriors are coming home. Everybody knows that Goliath has just been defeated. Everybody knows that he had been out there terrorizing people for a month or two months. And, but here's, here's the, the thing that happens. They're celebrating in the streets, and in verse 7, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And listen to what they sang. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Uh-oh. You know, that, that's, that's not a good thing. You're the king, they're singing about somebody else who is, they're singing more praises to, and in that moment, for Saul, everything starts to go downhill. We see the downward spiral of Saul. We see jealousy creep in. Verse 8, And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So as I mentioned in the announcements, right after Easter, Courtney and I and the family went to Alabama. I know. Polk County, you know, we go to Alabama, and we needed some, you know, it was just much needed R&R for the whole family. We have a four-month-old, so we didn't get much R&R, but it was still a nice getaway. Um, And during the trip, I was helping my dad trim some trees. My family has a house there, and so we were kind of doing a little upkeep, and we were trimming trees that had been there for over the winter, and there's vines, of course, that had grown all over everything, um, all the trees, and so we're, we're trimming, and then I woke up the next day, and my whole body ached. I mean, it just ached so bad. I could barely get out of bed. So I mentioned it to my dad, and of course, he just makes a joke about me getting old, you know, which doesn't make any sense, because obviously he's older than I am, but he just makes this joke, and but I mean, this, I've been sore before. I mean, obviously, I don't work out a lot, but I've been sore before, and 
you know, this was not sore. This was four days. For four days straight, I woke up. I could barely get out of bed. I mean, it was just like, you know, my back hurt. Everything hurt. And then I was talking to Courtney, and I was like, see, if, man, my back just hurts. Look and see if you see something right here. And there was this little rash, little bumps on my back. And she goes, you got poison ivy. <laughs> All right? And I have a new respect for these little leaves <laughs> called poison ivy. Because it's, I mean, it, I don't know if you ever had poison ivy, poison oak, some of those before, but I mean, it, it literally injected my body with poison and I could feel it. I mean, I almost felt sick and I mean, literally my skin hurt to touch. There was, I mean, there's nothing even there and it hurt to touch. It had literally come, it only showed itself in a couple spots, but it had taken over my whole body. My feet were tingling and it's, you know, it just consumed me. And jealousy, when it gets a hold of you, is it does the exact same thing. Jealousy, envy, what we're seeing with Saul right now in your life, it's poison. And it's this terrible emotion. It's this hunger that just doesn't go away. And Satan's the whole time saying, you need that. You need that. You deserve that. Somebody's going to try to take that from you. You're the rightful heir of that. This is what you need. And it's just this constant whisper. It's this consuming pain that begs you to deal with it. Comes in all shapes, comes in all sizes. You know, maybe like Saul, you're jealous over someone else's good fortune. Let's be serious. You get on Facebook enough, you're going to be jealous about something. You see all these things that people have. You see these things. Oh, they're doing this. Oh, they're doing this. Oh, this happened. You know, or you go out and you see these cars. People are driving, you know, good fortune, fame, worldly success. Oh, man, look where they live now. Look where they're driving now. It's poison. It can consume you if you're not careful. And it even happens in ministry. You can get consumed with ministry success. Somebody asked me this question one time in a Bible study. And they said, would you be happy if revival came to the church you were working in? Yeah? Like, that's pretty easy answer. I mean, what happens if revival just broke out? People are coming to know the Lord. Visitors are coming. People are getting baptized. People are getting saved, joining the kingdom of God. Like, man, wouldn't that be awesome? Would you be excited about that? I'm like, yeah, I'd really be excited about that. And they said, what, hap- what would happen? Let me say it this way. Would you still be excited if it happened to the church next door and not your church? Would you still be just as excited about growth in the kingdom of God if it happened down the street and didn't happen with you? And as a pastor, that's a tough question. Because obviously I'm doing this for the kingdom, right? We're all in ministry for the kingdom. Everybody here is in ministry. And we're in ministry for the kingdom. You know, where people are being saved, we're witnessing, we're loving people, we're caring for people. But if I'm, if I, if I'm not careful and I ask that question a different way or I answer that question a different way, it's really all about me. And I can only be happy if good things happen to me. I can only be happy if good things happen to my church. I can't be happy for other churches or other things. And it's just, it's jealousy. It's envy. It's whatever, you want to, whatever label you want to put on it. And if you're not careful, it consumes you. And then when you get to this, if you do have success and God does give you success, if you're not careful, pride creeps in. Look what I did. Look how, look how good I am. But then when it starts to be taken away from you, like we're seeing in Saul, what creeps in then? Fear. Because hand in hand, jealousy's best friend is fear. And if you read this chapter, you see it over and over again. Saul is fearful. Saul is afraid. Saul, you see it over and over again. 
that, that he's afraid. Because it's, you know, it's this fear that somebody's going to take what's yours, what's owed to you, what you, what you deserve. And if you look at the contrast between Saul and his son Jonathan, one says, I can see what God is doing. And I'm going to give my robe to this guy because he's going to be the next king. And then you put yourself in Saul's shoes. He can see what's happening. It says it over and over and over again in the chapter. And God was with him and Saul was fearful because God was with him. And Saul says, I don't want to give it up. I need that. I need the fame. I need the power. I need the success. It's a very, very big contrast between King Saul and his son Jonathan. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 10, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did, as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So you're, you're David, you're playing whatever a lyre is. I'm, I'm going to picture in a harp, but I wish we had one up here. I could actually show you what it looks like, but I have no idea. So, but he's playing this lyre. I'll pretend like I even know what to do. Um, and all of a sudden a spear comes at him from Saul. You're just over here doing what you're supposed to do and a spear comes by your head. You're a war hero. Everybody loves you. You're strong. You're mighty. You've proven yourself. What do you do? Not what does David do. What do you do? A spear comes at your head, falls to the ground, and you're like, oh, look, there's a spear. What do you do? Do you pick it up? Be like, oh, I think you dropped this, Saul. I mean, put yourself in David's shoes and ask yourself, how do you respond when something like that happens? Not what can you get away with, not what is justifiable. What do you do? How do you, how do you respond? David had a different heart. It's very clear. It wasn't about what he could get away with. It's about what God wanted him to do. And then probably the most amazing word in the whole passage is the last word. I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. This means that Saul missed once. David left, came back, and Saul threw it again. Okay, so I can, I can maybe understand giving him some grace and mercy the first time. But now the, now the spear comes at your head the second time. Talk about justifiable actions, right? I mean, this dude, the first time was his free time. The second time, but what did David do? He left. One, one scholar said, I think I wrote it up there, it says, David's submission, listen to this, David's submission didn't even begin until he sat back down to play for the second time. Now he knew the danger, knew, he knew Saul's heart, and now he had to trust God. It's a pretty powerful statement. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. There's that line again. For the Lord was with him. I love the KJ, the New King James Version of verse 14. It says, And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Wisdom and God's presence always tend to go hand in hand. David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. You want, want to know why David was successful? The Lord was with him. Verse 15, And when Saul saw that he had great success... 
seeing somebody else's success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So Israel's really starting to love David. They're seeing all these military successes, and the tides are starting to turn. Saul wants to get rid of David. But he realizes that there's no way that he can now outright kill him. The spear thing, even though he'll probably try it again, the spear thing probably isn't going to go off as well the next time. So he says, I'm going I'm to put him in battle. Let's, let's, take a, let's, take a different, let's take a different approach. Let's switch gears. Verse 17, then Saul said to David, here is my elder, elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Like Saul cares about the Lord's battles. But fight the Lord's battles for me. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Basically, David, why don't you keep fighting for the Lord? And if you go out and keep fighting the battles, I'll give you my eldest daughter hoping probably that he would die. Verse 18, And David said to Saul, Who am I? Who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Verse 20, Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and this thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private, and say, behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? law, since I'm a poor man and have no reputation. So in those days, when a marriage took place, there was a bride price, a dowry was exchanged, and it was paid to the bride's father. And the more important and prestigious the bride, the higher the dowry, the higher the bride price. And David basically says, look, I'm a poor man. You expect, how am I going to afford to pay this dowry to the king? There's no way this is happening. And so verse 24, the servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Now, this is probably the most outrageous dowry of all time. I don't know if you would agree. I can't think of anything much worse. Um, but it's clearly, it's a trap. You're going to go out and kill these Philistines. You know, it's a trap. If you succeed, now you're going to have to deal with uncircumcised Philistines. Literally have to deal with them. And it was meant to humiliate them. Maybe you'll die. At a minimum, you'll be humiliated. And what did David do? I mean, it's like, if I'm asked the question, you know, the humiliation, it's like, David did What? Uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking in, if I'm listening, if I'm trying to think, okay, okay, that dude, I'm writing him off. He just did what to those Philistines? You know, it's meant to humiliate him, meant to get him angry. If I was him, look, when I killed Goliath, I had the right to marry your daughter. You already said it. My family doesn't pay taxes. I can marry your daughter. Don't make me go do this. All right, this is obviously me, not David. Don't make me go do this. All right? It's embarrassing. Why should I have to go do this? You know, and... David does what? 
When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David arose and went along with his men, and he didn't kill 100 Philistines, he killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, I don't know who counted them, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Just thank God that wasn't a flannel graph when I was a kid, right? Um, so Saul says, all right, you did what you were supposed to do. I'm going to give you my daughter, Michael, for your wife. Verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, what? Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Verse 30, the last verse of the chapter. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So if I'm a Philistine and I heard what your guy just did to my guys, we're going to do battle. And so that's, that's essentially what happened. The Philistines, the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, but it says God was with David and he was successful in all he did. Why was he successful? Because God was with him. Right? And to be clear, it's like, you know, you look at this, and I look at the way he carried himself. I look at the way he carried himself much differently probably than I would have carried myself. Humble every step of the way. Every turn. Get spears thrown at him. Okay? Get spears thrown at him again. Okay? Here's the dower. You got to go do this. Go fight these Philistines. Go to, okay? He knew God was with him. He knew God was in control. He knew God could do anything through him. Instead of talking back and throwing spears and fighting, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to walk. I'm going to walk this path. He's got an extreme sense of humility. So where, where do we go from here? What do we, pretty interesting chapter, 1 Samuel 18. What do, we, what do we take home from this? What do we, what do we take to, you know, chew on for the week? What can, we, what can we think through this on? First thing I want you to take home, and we're going to talk about this more in coming weeks. I want you to understand the need for deep friendships. You can see that clearly in Jonathan and David. Make time for friendships. Build them into your schedule. You say, I don't have enough time for that. You eat three meals a day, don't you? Most of you don't work while you eat. Invite people to lunch with you, breakfast, dinner. Like, make time for deep relationships. And when you do get together, go deeper. I got a lot of acquaintances, friends, that I can talk all day about sports and fishing, and college football, and finance, because that's what I do for a living, and movie. I mean, you name it, we can talk all that stuff all day long. But do I ever take it to a deeper level? Do I, do I ever talk to people about what God's doing in my life? Do I ever allow people to keep me accountable for things? Do I ever tell people, here's what I'm struggling with, can you pray for me? Not very often. Go deeper in your friendships. Take time to talk about what God's doing, what, what you hope he does. Right? Here's where I really am praying that God leads me and this is where I, where I want to be with him. And Read scripture. Talk about scripture together. When's the last time you had one of your friends over and it wasn't a Bible study and the two of you just talked about the word? And I'm preaching to myself. Like that, That's the picture you get of the New Testament church. Am I right? 
You read Acts, that's the picture you get of the New Testament church. Francis Chan, the ladies are going through Bible study on Sunday nights, Forgotten God. I think this is our last week. Um, but they're going through the Francis Chan book, and there's a, there's a story in the book. And Francis Chan said a gang member joined his church. Some of you heard this story before, but he said a gang member joined his church. Here's what he said. He said he was heavily tattooed, rough around the edges, but was curious to see what church was like. He had a relationship with Jesus and seemed to get fairly involved. After a few months, I found out the guy was no longer coming to church. When asked why he didn't come anymore, he said, I had the wrong idea of what church was going to be like. When I joined the church, I thought it was going to be like joining a gang. You see, in the gangs, we weren't just nice to each other once a week. We were family. And Francis Chan says, it saddens me to think that a gang could paint a better picture of commitment, friendship, loyalty, and family than the local church. And I want more than anything, as a pastor of your church, I want more than anything for Creekside Church to be a church that that strives for deep friendships. Real, genuine friendships. Most of us have never experienced that before inside the body of Christ, maybe outside of a few people. Where the whole church actually understands what it means to love one another. The whole church actually understands what it, what it means to, to be the church. And I, again, I've said this before and I'm going to say it again only because it's so true. I'm preaching to myself. I don't do that. Most of us in here, especially guys, we got maybe one or two people that we would consider to be a really, really good friend. And even with them, we don't go very deep. I just, I would love nothing more for us over the next couple weeks, months, years, as we get together, we fellowship together, we hang out together, that we take it deeper. We keep each other accountable, hold each other accountable, we understand what it means to be the church. All right, then the other thing I want us to take away as we close is understanding the paralyzing power of jealousy, envy. You know, at its root, jealousy really is just, it's about protecting what is our deepest love. Right? If somebody gets it or if somebody gets something I really want, you know, if you just are obsessed with your car and somebody else gets a better car than you, it's like, And you're envious. You know, it starts to creep in. That's a pretty bad example, but you see what I mean. You you tend to, whatever you're protecting the most, you would never, ever, ever. Saul with his kingship. Protecting it with every ounce of his being. I'm never going to give this away, even though I see the writing on the wall. There's no way I'm getting rid of this kingship. Protecting it with every, it's his deepest love. Saul's deepest love was for himself. It was for his own success. And when that started to slip away from him, Fear showed up because jealousy and fear always walk hand in hand. Always walk hand. It's like the teenager that finally gets the girlfriend, and as soon as he gets her, he's like, "Something's going to happen, right?" Jealousy creeps in. Everybody remembers teenage relationships. You know, it's embarrassing, but as you know, jealousy creeps in, and you're just like, you know, you're obsessive, and you know, she can't go anywhere, she can't do anything. There's nothing going to happen. The fact of the matter is, you're fearful. You're fearful that she's going to leave you. You're fearful that somebody's going to take you. She's going to... And that's, that's the way it creeps in, right? It's just like you're consumed in this, this, this nasty cycle of jealousy and fear. And guess what? Christ on the cross, the gospel, has freed you from jealousy. It has freed you from envy. It made you where you can be confident in who you are in Christ, confident in who you are in Christ, right? Your identity is not bound up in your profession. Your identity 
is not bound up in what people think of you. Your identity is bound up in Christ. And I mean, it's easy to say, right? It's easier said than done. But his power is the only way that jealousy will be killed in your life. Jonathan, you look at Jonathan. Jonathan knew that regardless of whether he became king, that God was in control. It's clear his joy was not in his success because he just gave it to David. Here you go. It's yours. I was reading a story as we close from Ravi Zacharias, um, who I really enjoy listening to. And he was talking to this story about this Olympic athlete. And here's what he says. He says, a few years ago, a former Olympic athlete came to visit me looking for some direction in his life. He told me at the time he was representing his country at the Olympics. From the age of 12... The Olympics had been all he labored for. He put every penny he earned and every purchase he made into someday becoming a gold medalist in the event he loved. He was totally focused. This is what he wanted. But he had a very turbulent relationship with his father, who had no interest in this dream of his. And therefore, he had to funnel every bit of his own money into his dream. said when he was 17, he filmed the world champion in that event, the event he was training for, and he would watch it frame by frame, slide by slide. And he said that he filmed himself frame by frame, side by side. He would watch him and he would try to tweak his steps, tweak what he was doing just enough to shave a few seconds off of his time. And over the years, it said through willpower, discipline, courage, that he finally got to his goal. He made the cut for his country's team. Life was suddenly beginning to look good. He won every heat he was in leading up to the Olympics. And he eventually emerged as the favorite to win the gold medal. It said he was at the starting point for the finals. Everyone was watching. The nation was watching. Millions of people were watching. You know, his heart's racing. Man, this country boy, maybe he's going to be an Olympic champion. And, you know, picture's going to be in the newspaper one day. And he was, like, so excited. He said he's down in his stance. And right as the gun's about to go off, he said there's this thought that just all of a sudden unexpectedly creeped into his head. And he said, I wonder if my father's watching me. And in that moment, he said it just, it was this split second. And I mean, just as he's waiting to listen for the gun, he says, I wonder if my father is watching. I mean, even though it only lasted for a second, when he's interviewed, he said, I just, I lost a step. I was about two strides behind and I won the bronze instead of the gold. And it said, you know, with he said, I mean, great, he still won the bronze. He's the third fastest person in the world, right? I mean, that's, for most of us, that would be perfectly fine. Yet to him, his pursuit of the gold, his pursuit of victory, when you sat it up side by side and measured against the deepest yearnings of his heart, meant nothing. He said, in that moment, I just wanted my dad to be watching. And it's, when, you, when I was reading it, I was just like, man, it's such a powerful thought. You think of Johnny, you think of Saul, and you think of the, you know, the dynamic relationship they had and how different they were. And, you know, for some of you in this room, maybe your earthly father's a lot like Saul. Angry, cruel, jealous. And you tend to view God the same way. You know, and then for others of you, your heavenly, or your earthly father's great. It is none of that, but you still tend to view God that way. And let me, let me encourage you as we close and just tell you that you have a heavenly, everybody in this room has a heavenly father who loves you. Even if you don't have a relationship with him yet, he loves you and he's pursuing you. You're here for a reason. Somebody invited you maybe 
But you said yes for a reason. God is pursuing you because he wants you to understand, regardless of whether your life looks like Jonathan, you could give up the kingship, regardless of your life looks like David, regardless of your life looks like Saul, the heavenly father is looking down and he loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He humbled himself and came to earth to pay the penalty for your sins. Paul tells it to church at Philippi this way as we close. Philippians 2, 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're sitting here today and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, I would encourage you to do that today. And for everybody in this room, when you thought life was going to turn out a certain way and it didn't, look to Jesus. When you thought you were going to be king and you weren't, look to Jesus. When success comes your way, look to Jesus. When spears come your way and are thrown at you, Look to Jesus. Everything you do, look to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.